Hello and welcome to the Independent Research Forum podcast. The IRF represents the cream of independent investment research providers to institutional investors. I'm JP Smith and I'm in conversation today with Dr. Peter Warburton, founder of Economic Perspectives. Peter founded Economic Perspectives in 1996, having been chief economist for a number of prestigious city firms, most recently Robert Fleming. His structural thesis was laid out in his 1998 book, Debt and Delusion, which was very well received and which has certainly stood the test of time. Economic perspectives follow around 40 of the major global economies and publish a variety of insightful reports and data sets, including the very useful heat maps, which I've been perusing this morning. Not not totally encouraging, I have to say, the outlook from those. Um, And I'm sure Peter will talk more about that. Peter likes to interact with clients on a bespoke consultancy basis when they can take full advantage of his global range and experience, studying the relationship between economies and financial markets to generate actionable asset allocation advice. The subject for this podcast is the UK back from the brink, regeneration through deleveraging. Peter will start by discussing the medium term outlook for the UK before examining the global context and drawing some conclusions for asset allocation. Before you start, Peter, is there anything else you'd like to add about your service, or would you like to go straight in with your thoughts? Let's go straight in. Obviously, the timing of this podcast is connected to the UK's autumn statement last Thursday, and I'll refer to that shortly. But I want to begin with a a perspective, really, on the policy error, as I see it, that occurred during those very traumatic pandemic years. I think that history will not be kind to the UK policymakers regarding this period. I know that at the time, it seemed as though there was no other course, perhaps, that we could take to have multiple lockdowns. But it's becoming increasingly clear what the cost, the broader costs of of those policies were. What I have in mind is that we've killed off at least half a million businesses and we've demoralized at least a a million small business owners and their employees. We've incentivized at least 250,000, maybe as many as half a million, very capable and productive migrant workers to leave. So we put ourselves at a significant disadvantage and I would say that really that the mistakes that we've made uh, through COVID probably dwarf mistakes arising from Brexit. So I have in mind three negatives that we are now grappling with. The first is I think we've we've damaged the nation's physical and mental health, which means we're gonna have to spend more on health and social care, uh, even than we we currently imagine to try and um, prevent some of the, or at least offset some of the damage that's been done. The second is we've induced, as I've inferred, a negative productivity shock. Um, I I think that there's a sense in which the whole nation in the economic uh, working population took its foot off the gas during COVID. And and for some people, it was a a relatively mild and temporary interruption to their normal pace of working and operation. But sadly, I think in other cases, it's transitioned into a kind of a, a, a much um, more relaxed way 
of of working and uh, maybe a sense of maybe doing the minimum that's required uh, rather than what would be required to be successful for themselves or indeed those for whom they work. So that's speculation in part, on my, but I, I think it, it, there's, there's an element of truth into this that we're dealing with a negative productivity shock induced by the, the length of, of interruption to normal working. And thirdly, we've got a, a negative participation shock. I think we desperately need to bring back significant proportion of those over 50s workers, some of them over 65, who still have an awful lot to offer in the workforce. And, and many of them have been expensively trained and therefore we, we need them back in the workforce. Sorry, Peter, can I just ask you a question about that? Because obviously, a lot of people were given sort of fairly temporary handouts during COVID. Also, a lot of people who rely on invested money have seen quite big falls in their pensions, especially if they were nearing retirement or in early retirement and they had a lot of money in bonds. Do you think these two factors could actually drive people back into the workforce through necessity? Firstly, as the money runs out and secondly, as the sort of amount of pension available to them declines. Yes, I think this is likely to be the case. Obviously, many people will not appreciate the extent to which um, their their pension pots and other investments have devalued this year until they they, they get their end year statements. So I, I think for some people it's going to be a very painful piece of mail. So I would expect through the course of next year, yes, that that, that would help to propel people back into into work. But I, I, I think it, it's so significant and urgent that I, you know, I, I think we may, maybe should already be thinking about incentive schemes to um, really encourage people to re-engage. The second point I want to make is really about the Bank of England, because the bank, I think, greatly amplified the, the economic pain for the UK households. And obviously that, that pain is, is um, largely still to come. And the pain was inflicted, I think, by what can only be described as a reckless uh, quantitative easing policy, effectively matching the the incremental budget deficit from the from the COVID relief and support measures um, with the expansion of its own balance sheet, which of course was a, a pure monetary expansion. And today's double-digit UK inflation, I think, can credibly be traced more to the Bank of England than two external factors. So the very opposite of, of, the, the, man, of the, the, the narrative that they espouse. Um, I, I would say that 75% um, of today's UK inflation is, is the fault of bank policy uh, and 25% may be um, attributed to external factors beyond our control. I think the bank has failed dismally to restrain inflation. And in the course of the pandemic, um, obviously possibly uh, over-influenced by what the Fed was doing in terms of its balance sheet. But um, I, I think we've ad adopted a policy which is extreme in the context of economic history. Uh, and I think just that the lack of understanding about balance sheets and, and monetary aggregates uh, is really quite breathtaking. And I, I think um, I think it might have been John Vickers who, who pointed this out in a, in a recent speech. Um, but just how mentions of of money and the the, the role of, um, of financial balance sheets has just more or less evaporated completely from the uh, from the, the quarterly reports. So 
no surprise perhaps that um, we walked into this era. The autumn statement and the policies designed now by Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, I think uh, the government's making the best of a bad job. And obviously the, the autumn statement, I think, should be seen very much in, in that light. Yes, obviously it's been badly received because it's it's got some painful measures in there, not, not least for, uh, um, for middle and, and uh, moderately higher income earners. But the, the context that matters for me is that the, the cumulative uh, projected budget deficit, and this is even on, on the, the, the OBR's somewhat um, generous assumptions, is over 300 billion pounds by 26, 27, over what we thought it might be in March. That's an awful lot of, of primary issuance. And I rather fear that, um, you know, whilst we've, we've recovered quite a lot of ground in, in terms of the gilt market since the debacle linked to failed LDI derivative strategies in late September, early October, but nevertheless, international appetite for our government bonds is not great right now. And, um, you know, I think the, the pension funds will want to rebalance their portfolios away from sterling fixed interest, or at least from, from government fixed interest, from where they currently stand. So it seems to me that the bank's balance sheet is going to be needed again. And, and whilst I know that they're bravely trying to implement a, a program of quantitative tightening, I think it is unlikely to be long lived. I think the bank is going to be the only credible buyer of, of a substantial part of this additional 300 plus billion pounds. And that just really underscores, I think, what has happened through this double policy failure by the government and by the bank, which is to you know, present ourselves with no longer the option of being, of, of the bank being truly independent. Uh, I think the, the bank has been reassigned to the defense of sovereign debt, and therefore it isn't independent. It, it can't pursue an independent inflation strategy. And so when we look at the, the OBR forecasts and we see inflation uh, obediently falling back to 2% in 2024 and actually uh, a period of mild deflation in 2025-26, then I, I'm sorry, but I, I, I have to put my hand up and, and raise a fundamental objection here. That basically, the, the expansion of the bank's balance sheet isn't over as far as I can see. And other countries have proved that you can have a bigger balance sheet, central bank balance sheet, in relation to the size of your nominal economy than, than we currently do. So the, 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 there is no obvious constraint on the resumption of, of QE. If we just look at the UK in, in context, then everything you said about the UK with the debt profile and the difficulty in, in potential difficulties in funding and the central bank errors, just putting the UK in an international context, maybe leaving Japan to one side. But if, if we look at the EU, uh, the Eurozone, and if we look at the US, is the UK differentiated in any way apart from the debacle, of course, of the Trust and Kwatang budget? Yes. I mean, I, I think the UK is 
different in a number of ways. I mean, I, I think it's different because of our very large small business sector. I mean, not far off 5 million people were classified as self-employed going into the pandemic. Uh, that's a much bigger proportion than America even. So you know, if you like, we, you know, we at least nominally present as, a, as an entrepreneurial nation and, and these small businesses have, have had a torrid time, partly because support packages didn't reach them in the same degree as for other sectors of the workforce. The other thing is that we are an incredibly financialized economy. We've made a great virtue of our financial services industry and not just the city, but shipping, insurance and research and all kinds of really, you know, very strong internationally earning businesses. So I, I think we're more vulnerable to a repricing of our debt and indeed of the lifting of our yield curve because there's a lot of debt underpinning financial services activity. So, I mean, I think in a sense that also makes us more vulnerable in some of these higher rate, higher volatility scenarios. As, as I guess happened in the wake of the financial crisis as well, given the size of our financial sector then. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I want to move on to, to the OBR just briefly as, as well. The OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, is deeply conflicted in formulating its forecasts for the economic and financial outlook. I mean, its recent published forecasts have been woeful. I mean, they're not alone in that, but I think including a complete lack of understanding of the inflationary surge as late as the summer of 2021. So over the next two to three years, the risk to, the, to inflation remain uh, really quite considerable and, and uh, much, much greater than represented by the OBR's forecast document. So I think the, the problem here is that there there is no real appreciation of not only the very challenging geopolitical climate, which should embrace what's going on in China, as well as what's going on in, in, in Russia and Ukraine, and clearly a blindness, I think, also to the very difficult political economy predicament that the, the Conservative government is in, notwithstanding its 70-seat parliamentary majority. So, I mean, the problem here is, yes, we do face a winter of discontent. You know, I mean, part of, of the, the public spending that is represented in the autumn statement is a, a virtual pay freeze for public sector workers, or you know, maybe a, a, a sort of a, a couple of percent increase. I mean, I just don't see that holding. You know, I, I I don't think it's it's credible, particularly in relation to health service workers and people working in social services and social care and so on. You know, that the basically they are looking for some kind of recompense and some kind of, of recognition in their pay for the way that they looked after us in during COVID. So, you know, I, I think the, you know, the natural justice will be seen to be on their side. And I, and I think that the, the government is going to really struggle to, to hold the line on pay. So UK pay inflation is up to 6%. I could easily see it going to something like 8% um, over the course of next year. So what this means, of course, is that I think that there's going to be more pressure on inflation, more pressure on nominal uh, magnitudes 
and also there's going to be a corporate earnings squeeze. I think few people seem to be brave enough these days to forecast what happens to corporate profits, judging by the consensus uh, comparisons. But I would have thought there's a strong case for saying that we're, we're going to see a double-digit decline in, in, if you like, the economic version of corporate profits over the next 12 months and, and maybe further declines in, in 2024. So, Part of this setup for me is a much longer period in which nominal incomes outstrip nominal debt in growth terms. And so this is part really of a, if like a forced, but I think healthy deleveraging of the private sector. And that means households and businesses as well. So whilst it will conflict with government objectives, it will undermine the, the credibility of the Bank of England and its supposed um, ability to address an inflationary target. I don't think that the bank will have the moral authority to take the necessary steps to bring inflation under control in the context of the political economy of a tight labor market, artificially tight because of the departures from the workforce and the drop in, in labor productivity. But I, I, I think it, it is highly unlikely that there will be a permanent decline in inflation. I think, I think everybody expects a plunge in headline inflation next year, but I think, I think that will be temporary. And I, th I think a lot of the difficulties that we still encounter both nationally, regionally and globally in terms of supply chains and supply shortages uh, will contribute to a more inflationary climate, a more volatile inflationary climate over the next three years or, or longer. But the good news about this set, this reset is that it will be healing. So when, when I kind of started out my professional career in 1975, Inflation was public enemy number one, and enormous efforts had to be taken to, to try and bring this rampant and, and misunderstood inflation under control. And it took, it took years for, 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 for that to happen. But inflation now is, is cast in the, in the opposite role. Inflation, I think, is, is actually a safety valve, even a kind of a, a healing mechanism for the excesses and distortions that we've allowed to creep into the economic and financial system. Would you say as well, Peter, that it's a way of redressing some of the intergenerational and social imbalances? It's sort of payback time for us boomers in a way. Yeah, I agree with that. I think government policies, for all kinds of reasons, will also complement that inflationary redistribution. You know, I, I think that younger generations will be favoured by government policy, partly through much faster wage growth, but also through targeted student debt relief uh, and improve access to affordable housing. I think inflation will be used as a substitute for other forms of taxation, which will bring aggregate tax burdens under control within the next three years. So yes, I think inflation is a covert agent of redistribution between the generations. And I don't know whether the key sort of election cycle will be 2024 or 2028, but I would have thought no later than 2028, when the millennials and, and Generation Zers will assert themselves at the polls in support of these more friendly uh, generational policies. Absolutely. And that's likely to happen in the US. I mean, one or two commentators have talked about a tipping point there. And of course, there's a sort of 
racial element as well in the US with the sort of growing proportion of Hispanics in the population as well. Although, as we found out, they don't necessarily vote in a kind of homogenous and predictable way. Absolutely. So I think probably I just want to wrap up at this point and say that, yes, what are the good things that we could anticipate coming out of what at the moment seems really quite a, a painful short-term experience? Well, the, I mean, the, just, just to make clear, I, I don't agree with the OBR's projection of a 7% contraction in real after-tax household incomes. I, I don't think politically we can go there. You know, I, I think wages have to rise more and that erosion of living standards will, I think, be actually be less than they project. But I think the what we can look forward to, if you, if you like, sort of three years or so down the road, in terms of the regeneration of the UK economy, I think is the empowerment of the young, the re-engagement of the old, for economic reasons mainly, renewal of infrastructure, which I think will be a big part of the way that we we leave recession is going to be through infrastructure spending, mixture of public and private. What we should see is a sub substantial deleveraging of the private sector and ultimately stabilization of public finances. But I don't think that stabilization comes anything like so quickly as the autumn statement has projected. Those are some really fascinating and actually quite provocative conclusions. And I'm, for one, I'm delighted in what you say about the redressing of the imbalances between the generations. But given that we're talking to and about asset allocators, how, if you're allocating assets, would you try and preserve the real value of your wealth against that backdrop? And is that even possible? It's certainly very, very challenging, you know, particularly as we are likely to see other episodes, I think, when both bonds and equities lose ground at the same time. So, I mean, I, I think obviously with equities, the, there's such a diversity of characteristic. So I, I think, you know, the, the, there are deep value equities that you know, one can hold through this storm, you know, and, and will, will emerge out of it. And I, I think, I think in the oil and gas sector and uh, the shipping sector, I think there's some good examples where we've really um, destroyed the replacement cycle. And so we've, we're left with very little capacity in, in some sectors that we, we're going to need a lot more capacity in, in a normalizing scenario. So, so I, I, you know, I think there's, there's all kinds of, of niche areas where deep value equities and indeed in, in Asia and Latin America as well. But um, I think there's still a role for inflation-protected bonds. I know that they've, uh, they've had a, a torrid time in the context of, of the UK's LPI, sorry, LDI, sorry, disaster and, and uh, liquidation. But I, I, I think if you can buy an index-linked bond on a modest real yield, I think that's a perfectly sensible thing to do because of the inflationary upside that we still face. But really, probably nothing of longer duration than, than five years just to, to avoid the big swings in bond markets, which are still likely to occur. So yes, I think there will be conventional bond market rallies, but I, I, I think they're, they could be quite profitable, but I think they'll be brief. And I, I think we're still ratcheting up to, let's say a US treasury yield of 5% you know, by 2025, could be higher still. So I, I think, yes, this unusual cycle means that you should ignore the cyclical dimension of commodities. 
basically, I think that capex and infrastructure and environmental related investments will be very commodity heavy and they will be part of, of the way out of this coming recession. So don't disregard commodities. Uh, many, many of them are, are you know, again, part of the, of the deep value brigade. And um, I suppose I will mention gold. I've always thought of gold really as like kryptonite to Batman. And I think in this more volatile and dangerous inflationary world where central banks, I think, will have their hands tied in confronting any inflationary upsurge, then um, I think I think gold has, has a place in most portfolios. And then finally, on the asset allocation front, any strong thoughts about the currency? Is the strength of the dollar likely to persist? I'm obviously it's given back a little bit recently, but over the medium term? Yeah, I, I think there's a there's a, a sort of geopolitical premium in the dollar. I think the conflict in Ukraine has weaponized the US dollar. I think it's made dollar collateral disproportionately more attractive than other forms of collateral. So I, I think some of that premium is, is likely to be there until we see some kind of a resolution in Ukraine. But I do think that foreign investors are overexposed to the US. I don't think it is the safe haven. And obviously that's certainly been proven in, in some of the high profile tech stocks uh, recently as well. So I, I think uh, the event for the dollar is probably preceded by another setback in the S&P. Uh, and, and I think that there'll be a sort of a, a reconsideration of, of how much US exposure that uh, investors really want to have while the US is undergoing its own recession, which I think will probably, the US will probably be after Europe in, into recession. Yeah, well, it's going to be a very different environment to the one we've seen up to relatively recently, where you could just buy US index funds and sit on them. I mean, clearly, we're all going to have to be a lot more active about how we go about things from now on if we want to actually you know, safeguard our wealth, particularly in real terms. Well, thank you very much, Peter. I'm aware we've really only been able to see the sort of tip of the iceberg in terms of what you're able to discuss and talk about and what you're currently following. So I'd really encourage clients to contact the IRF to discuss a trial to economic perspective service, but more importantly, actually how to engage with Peter himself, because there's nothing better than experience and knowledge to help navigate these challenging times. Peter Warburton, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure.